If you have a brain, you have bias. So let's just own it. Some biases help us by simplifying our decision-making process. Other biases hold us back by impacting who gets hired and promoted, and even who we approach to be our friends. Welcome to Breaking the Bias, a podcast where we interview impact makers who are breaking the bias when it comes to inclusion and equity, because sharing our stories is how real belonging happens. The bullies from the schoolyards and classrooms would follow me into corporate America. That this idea of chasing inclusion and wanting to feel valued, seen, and recognized would be something I would be struggling with my entire personal life, career, and then now I'm still chasing it on behalf of other people. Welcome, I'm Holly Corbett, VP of Content for Consciously Unbiased. Our special guest today on Breaking the Bias is the incredible Mita Malik, co-host of the Brown Table Talk podcast, author of the upcoming book, Reimagine Inclusion, and head of Equity, Impact, and Inclusion at CARTA. During our conversation, Mita shared how being bullied as a child led to her lifelong search for inclusion. The most common myths about inclusion we tell ourselves that stop us from making meaningful progress and how to meet people with kindness and grace when they make mistakes. Now, on to our conversation. I've been chasing inclusion my entire life. I really have been chasing inclusion my entire life. So when I was growing up, I'm the proud daughter of Indian immigrant parents. My younger brother and I were born and raised in the U.S. We spent most of our childhood, early years, teen years outside of Boston And I was always the funny-looking, dark-skinned girl with the long, funny-looking braid whose parents spoke funny English until it wasn't funny anymore. And I was bullied a lot, both verbally and physically growing up. And all I wanted was to belong. I wanted to feel included. I wanted to feel seen. And I was just excluded for so many moments of of those times growing up. And I had a really wonderful family with my, my dad and mom, my brother. So at home, it was different. But anytime I stepped outside, I was met with clear understanding that this was not my community and I didn't belong here. And what I didn't recognize or understand at the time was that the bullies from the schoolyards and classrooms would follow me into corporate America, that this idea of chasing inclusion and wanting to feel valued, seen, and recognized would be something I would be struggling with my entire personal life, career, and then now I'm still chasing it on behalf of other people. You think bullying stops when you're a kid, but it's still there in the workplace. And just to go back, is there something that you used to hide about yourself now that you're open to sharing? Something I used to hide about myself? Probably I used to hide myself, meaning I wanted to be invisible. I didn't want to be seen because I was targeted so much and bullied so much. So it was just easier just to always sit in the back not raise my hand. And I was really studious. I loved learning and reading and writing, of course. And because I wasn't always lonely, but I was certainly alone, right? In a lot of the activities, I'm I'm much more of a quiet leader, much more of an introvert. I always say, I think being painfully shy and quiet are two different things and being introverted, they're all different things. But yeah, I think now I'm just boldly and unapologetically share what's on my mind. Mm, knowing that. that that'll make an impact for somebody who listens out there. So that's, I think, what's changed. Yeah. And do you, do you think the definition of leadership is changing too and what employees need from leaders? 
I hope so. I really hope so. Certainly in my time, I try to lead with sort of this different approach of you'd have to ask my teams and the people who work for me, but rather than being a triangle where I sit at the top, it's a circle. We're all in service of each other and service of the company. And I do think more and more leaders I see are like, the vision is to create more leaders. It's not to just be the leader and hold on to that power or privilege, but it's like, how can you inspire others to lead? Mm-hmm. And I hope that that's changing. I think particularly with the global pandemic, so many things reshifted. I hope that leaders are thinking more about not just their careers, but the careers of others, because it's such a privilege and an honor to be able to lead. Yeah. Yeah. And during the pandemic, I mean, we saw, you know, with the great resignation and people really kind of redefining like how they're spending their time, what their values are, what's important to them. And I was listening to an episode of your podcast, The Brown Table Talk, where you were talking about burnout. And I personally felt it mm-hmm. later on, like when the pandemic was ending, which I thought was surprising. Like at this time, I mean, definitely during the pandemic, but when it was over, when I finally like was still and had a moment, that's when it really hit me. And I just, you know, we've seen a rise in burnout and in mental health issues in recent years. So were you able to overcome burnout? And if so, how did, how did you do it? I think I still struggle with it. I'll be honest. It's like that, you know, the flame that keeps going in and out. I'm thinking of a literal matchstick and that flame. And I think there's a big conversation to be had, which is happening in in the U.S. where there is not infrastructure, healthcare support for individuals who are struggling with mental health for caregivers, right? I come in to this conversation as a caregiver, as a mom to an eight and 10 year old who three years ago were younger. It is, it is really difficult, right? To not have a village and systems of support. And I sit here having a lot of privilege and having this conversation with you where other individuals who are single parents who don't have, you know, women who are dropping out an alarming rate out of the workforce because they can't afford for childcare, recent article that I read. And so leaders thinking about that, like women aren't leaving necessarily by choice to stay home. They're leaving because they have no other choice. They cannot have, they can't find affordable childcare. So what does that mean for the future of our economy and our workforce? So the burnout, that because the foundation is not there, there's cracks in it, right? So the ways in which I would say as a mother, as a, someone who works outside the home, the support hasn't always been stable for many of us. And so that's how our mental health is impacted. We're also living in a time where I joke, I could like, I don't know, order a Shake Shack milkshake. I don't even know where my phone is. I put it away since we're talking, but we, we get what we want when we want it right? That's That's the economy. That's the time we live in. And so we treat ourselves that way too. Meaning that I have often treated myself like as an Uber app, always available whenever you need me, whenever, whenever I can do something to be in service of the company. And particularly when we were virtual 24 seven, and some of us are still remote, it's really difficult if you don't draw boundaries and you don't say, I'm going to just disconnect for the next hour, or I'm going to go for a walk, or I'm going to have dinner with my family, or I'm going to go take a jog. You're not going to re-energize yourself. You're not going to replenish. You won't be able to serve anybody. 
Yeah, I, I, I have a eight-year-old daughter and a 10-year-old son. He's going to be 10 in July. And I resonate with so much that you that you're saying. And I think the shift for knowledge workers, not everybody can work remotely, but for knowledge workers who were able to, I didn't realize how all these micro interactions throughout the day that I had before the pandemic, when I was in the office or going to get coffee on the corner, or there were, they actually really impacted my sense of like feeling connected to community and being able to kind of separate my work life from my home life. And I think creating those boundaries now has to be so intentional because many of us are hybrid or still remote. So how do you, as a leader, create an environment where people are able to say, hey, these are my boundaries and people understand their boundaries that, that you know, people aren't Uber apps. They're not on 24-7. You have to set them for yourself first and role model them. So I've been at Carta, it'll be two and a half years, three years this October. When I started, one of the things I decided to do was on my calendar, it says in perpetuity, I sit on the East Coast. 6 to 8 p.m. is blocked. It says dinner and bedtime with kids. That, now, does that mean that I'll never take a meeting during that time? Of course not. I'm breaking the rule this evening. That's okay. The point is people see as a senior executive what's important to me. And they know that. So that it allows people to put other things on their calendar and make them visible. And so if I don't do that for myself and show what the boundaries are, then no one's going to believe me that I'm going to respect their boundaries. And then when people do set boundaries, respect them. So if someone is on vacation, are you pinging them? Are you calling them? Or is this something that can wait till me to come back? And so it's one thing to create boundaries. It's another thing to respect them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think being a leader, setting, leading by example, saying that like you do have other responsibilities, obviously outside of work and putting them in your calendar yes. gives people permission to, to do the same. And I also think back to vacation, people need to take vacation because it, it actually makes you come back more energized. But if you're always being pinged by everybody in the workplace, you're not going to come back energized. It's not, you don't get the same benefits. So it's so important to give people space when they are away. And like, we're not doctors, most of us, you know, like it's, it's not the emergencies that we sometimes imagine them to be. But I, so you're many things, you're, you know, a a leader, a storyteller, a mother, a podcaster, and an author. Um, so your new book, Reimagine Inclusion, is coming out in October. Yes. And how do you define inclusion? How do I define inclusion? Well, the book is Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace. How do I define inclusion? I divide, I feel included when I feel valued, seen, and recognized that I belong. And okay, so you your book has these 13 myths. And I this one myth I just wanted to call out and have you unpack for us. And I quote, these DEI efforts don't benefit me. My voice as a white man doesn't count anymore. Can you unpack that? Yes. So there are 13 myths. People ask me why 13? It's my lucky number. There are more myths than that. But I really, in my time doing this work in organizations, thought about what are the things that people hold on to the stories that that we tell ourselves that stop us from making meaningful progress. And I've heard that too often from many white men who are friends, who have been supporters of my career. And I think there's two sides to this conversation. 
The first side is understanding for men who are listening, who want to understand how they can get involved in this work is the the power and privilege they have, right? Whether that is to next time you write a check to a supplier, ask what the diversity representation of that team is. You're being asked to come speak on a panel. You walk onto stage and realize every other panelist is a white man. You are the CEO of a company and you look around and pretty much everyone else looks like you. Ask yourself what your legacy is that you're going to leave behind and how can you help change the composition of that C-suite over the next, you know, three to five, 10 years that you're working and leading. And so there's that conversation to be had where men really understanding the role they play and the power they play. And I leave lots of really practical things, small and big things. Then there's the other side of the conversation, which is many white men who I've worked with over the course of my career feel shamed, named and blamed. And it is really difficult and appropriate when you see Harvey Weinstein and Matt Lauer in the news, because they do deserve to be named and to move on and to seek redemption outside of their workplaces. And those men don't represent all men. And so how can we also, in my role, meet people with kindness and grace when they make mistakes and when they ask questions, right? Now, let me just be clear. I'm not saying that someone can make the same mistake over and over again, but I am saying if someone comes and asks me a question that they might not understand, like, why is it, you know, Mita seems really upset that this person keeps mispronouncing her name. I don't think they're doing it intentionally. Why do you think that's so important to her? Like, why? So, you know, like you have to have a safe space to like educate someone on that. Right. And so the last thing I'll say is being a marketer. One of the things I talk about is inclusion being a driver of the business. If we're sitting in the US right now, Nielsen alone says that there's over $3.3 trillion of spending power with the multicultural consumer, right? So as I'm, we're speaking to white men who are listening, that's huge growth opportunity, right? And the question you have to ask yourself is, you have, do you have the diversity of representation on your teams to go and serve those markets authentically? Because there's the driver of growth. And if you're not doing that, you are going to be left behind. Right. Yeah. And I think it is what 2060 here in America, um, whites will no longer be the majority in this country. So, yeah, the you have to represent the demographics of your customer base if you want to be successful. So back to your podcast, um, you and your co-host, D.C. Marshall, often I love at the end how you give like tips and advice on allyship. So uh, like you walk away really feeling like, okay, I I have an action step that I can take. When it comes to allyship, can you share an example of a specific anecdote of allyship that you've witnessed that you think was particularly impactful? Well, I'll start by saying, I believe we are all an ally for someone, right? So imagine if we all showed up at work tomorrow thinking, who are we standing up for other than ourselves? Because it gets really burdensome, right? As a woman of color, I hate the word microaggressions. What's the opposite? Macroaggressions, the everyday aggressions that we face. It's really hard. It's just emotional labor tax, mentally draining, impacts our mental health. I was early on in my career in this marketing division where it was myself and another brown woman, South Asian woman. We're still friends to this day. She, I will call her Shilpa. She looks nothing like me. She is tall. She, I'm five, one and a half. She's, I don't know 
Anyone who's over five, one and a half, I just say they're tall. So maybe she's five, seven. I don't know. She's tall, short hair, glasses. We, we, we look very, very different. And for a lot of the time that I was at the company, people would always mistake me for her. We would be on, put on the wrong invites. We would be included in the wrong meetings. People would come by our desks thinking we were the other person. And this happened often enough that I remember one of my white man colleagues just saying in a meeting once, because I had been invited accidentally and it was, they meant to invite her. And she's like, this is, he's like, this isn't funny. Like they're two different people and they work on two different businesses. Like what's so funny about this? Because it's so, go back to what you asked me at the beginning, what does inclusion mean? to be valued, seen, and heard. I, people don't even have the respect to know my name mm. and know what I do or, or respect her. Mm. And so that's where it just takes. And in that moment, he did it in the meeting. I always say it's never too late. I know that there's politics, there's power in the room, there's bureaucracy. It could be hard to speak up and interrupt in the moment. Never too late. You can always go back after the moment. You can either go to the person who did or said something who intentionally or unintentionally caused hurt or harm. You could find a peer. You could find someone else to help navigate that situation. And I just wish there's one thing people are listening. Think about showing up to work tomorrow and how you would think about like, who who else are you fighting for here other than yourself? Hmm. And when that man spoke up in the meeting, did that help people? Like- yeah, I think people were like, oh, we're so sorry. And a number of people apologized to me. And it actually, and I left the company for a number of reasons shortly after that. But yeah, it was, I was like, wow. Because it had happened repeatedly. It wasn't a one-time thing. That's the other thing. People make a mistake. They apologize. They show up and do better. And it sort of became a joke, right? People thought it was funny. And you're like, okay, but it's not funny for the two people who keep being confused for each other. And we talk about this on the Roundtable Talk podcast. And so many women of color in particular reached out saying, yeah, this is my story. Right. Mm-hmm. It's happened to me too many times in places and spaces where when there's not enough representation, I'm I'm the other woman of color. Mm. Yeah. And what is something that you wish white women in particular knew? Mm, I love that question. I have uh the was it the double-edged sword? It's sexism and racism, right? And so I think that oftentimes in diversity, equity, inclusion efforts I've seen when we are trying to create a more inclusive workspace for women, white women disproportionately benefit. And so while we can rally around gender, don't forget other points of intersectionality, including race. And one of the things I would say, and I say to many of uh, white women that I work with and friends is just, you know, listen to the experiences of other, you know, women of color and don't dismiss them, right? Because it might not be your experience. And that's part of being an ally. And the journey to allyship is to not only listen, but to believe. Mm. To believe. And I want to give a shout out to friends who have an amazing podcast called Dear White Women. Mm-hmm. And a book based on the same. So if you are interested as a white woman who's listening, and particularly learning more about your role and creating more inclusive environments, I would really encourage you to go to those resources. And I'll put resources in the show notes too. So dear white women, we'll link to that. So, I mean, there's been a lot of, you know, polarization in the DEIB space currently. Um, 
But at the end of the day, most of us want the same goals, which is, you know, deeper connections, healthier sure. relationships. At Consciously Unbiased, we believe a big way to break the bias is, like you said, to listen to the stories of others. And what are some ways that you break the bias in your career? Yeah, I think that's a great question. One of the things I talk about in Reimagine Inclusion at the start of the book is that I believe we're doing this work backwards. We're spending so much time thinking about the workplace and this work doesn't start at our conference room tables. It starts at our kitchen tables. And so I ask leaders, I'll go through a series of questions. Tell me how you spend your weekends. What restaurants do you go to? Who cuts your hair? If you're at the grocery store, who's the cashier? And as we're going through these exercises, if you're closing your eyes as you're listening to us, you start to think about, imagine who's at these places, right? Think about the last barbecue, picnic, family, community celebration. Who's there? Who's in the room? And then I ask people, when you have a life moment to celebrate, something you're struggling with, who are the five people you call, you would call on who aren't in your family? And if they all look like you and act like you and think like you, the reality is that we're self-segregating. And the research I included in Reimagine Inclusion shows that over two-thirds of white Americans are still self-segregating, similar numbers for Black Americans. And so the question is, how do you expect people to show up at work differently if they don't have meaningful cross-cultural relationships, right? If they're not taking the time to think about how they're spending their time outside of work and not carrying stereotypes. Like that's the whole reason why we try to understand lived experiences that are, aren't our own. Because if I am the only Indian person you've ever known, I don't represent all South Asian women. I don't represent all women of color. Mm -hmm. And so that's the real work that has to be done is to really think about how are you trying to build meaningful relationships with people who are outside of your community? Right. Yeah. And similarity bias, you know, gravitating towards people who maybe look or act like you or think like you um, is real. Is Do you have any advice on how to diversify your yeah. your friendships? Yeah, it's interesting because I used to work a lot with leaders in Vermont and they'd yell at me and say, and Vermont in the U.S. is statistically one of the whitest states. And so they'd say, what do you want me to do? Move? <laughs> like, how? And, and so jokes aside, I think the global pandemic has showed us we're now more digitally, virtually connected more now more than ever. I've met so many people off of LinkedIn. You and I, I believe, met through the We Suite, right? Which is the, you know, a, another amazing community. There's so many communities to join. You don't have to be in the same town anymore to meet people. And so get on LinkedIn. I mean, I've met so many amazing people through LinkedIn and Instagram. And so you have to just be intentional about it. You can also drive a little further, right? Depending on where you live. You could think about, you know, I didn't grow up with the as as Christian. I grew up as Hindu, but I volunteered at a church. I wanted to meet different people outside of my faith. And so there are ways to do it. You could also think about, you know, buying local, supporting founders of color, building relationships like that. If rather than going to a big box grocery store, going somewhere small and just going every week to spend time and build relationships. I think there's so many ways. And for those of us who have children, there's nothing like our kids to help introduce us to, you know, parents, other parents we may not have met. And so 
I think you can do it with intentionality. And last thing I'll say is employee resource groups, they're, they're not your DEI strategy. I talk a lot about that in Reimagine Inclusion, but employee resource groups are wonderful. They're important for community and conversation. And that's another amazing way. If you're working at a company that's hosting events, like go and meet different colleagues. Like you can build relationships that work too. Mm, yeah. And I think you just, I, what I took away from this is be intentional. Like yes. don't go on automatic pilot. Like it might take you making an extra step or volunteering or getting out of your comfort zone by going to a new restaurant or a new place or, you know, reaching out to friends, uh, your, your kids, friends, parents, and yeah. making that first move. So I love all that advice. Is there anything else that you think is important to ask you that I haven't asked you? Oh, gosh, that's a big, um, what am I having for dinner? I'm wondering, <laughs> you know, uh, well, on, the, on the minds of a lot of parents, working, yeah. parents working outside the home. No, I mean, why did I write the book? I wrote the book because there's a lot of great DEI books out there. And I wanted to say all the quiet parts out loud, the things that we're not talking about that hold us back from doing this work, whether it's the myths we covered, including more like I'm all for diverse talent, as long as they're good. Our ad wasn't racist. It was simply a mistake. Of course, we support women. We just extended maternity leave. And so, you know, we laugh and chuckle and we're like, oh, yeah, we've heard those things before. And it's like, yeah, but how often have we heard them? And if we're all hearing them and holding on to them, how are we ever going to make progress in our workplaces? And where can people go to find out more about you and more about the book? Oh, awesome. Thank you so much for asking. LinkedIn. I'm also on Instagram. And Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace. Please go check it out. It is available for pre-order right now on Amazon in the US, UK, and Canada, working on the other markets. And if you follow Roundtable Talk podcasts like Holly does, you are also going to love the book. You can learn more about our guests and get show notes at consciouslyunbiased.com slash listen. And we want to hear from you. Please subscribe and rate Breaking the Bias on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to our podcasts. And drop us a note to let us know if there is a topic you really want to hear about or a guest you want to have on the show. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Bias. Mm -hmm.